0: All right, Michelle, so we are live and let's see here. Okay, everyone, I, I have actually spent what is it? I think it's been about a month and a half since we first connected. All of that time being so excited because you are literally one of my favorite authors, which you already know. But um, I'm just really grateful that you are willing to take the time to call in from Eastern Canada to chat with me today. Thank you for calling in. And so, well, let's talk about your name really quick.
1: One of the publishers, when they were reprinting the old Del Rey titles, wanted to use use Michelle West. And I had said, really use Michelle Segura. It's going to be more appropriate. And so then they decided to do Michelle Sagara West, a name I have never used. <laughs>
0: oh no. <laughs> okay, so I've been reading you since I was in my late high school, early college years. And so I've spent years being a little confused by this, Sagara, Sagara West, and the West. So here's the great thing is if you discover her work and you haven't read it before and you fall in love with it, you have thirty nine amazing books ahead of you that you get to enjoy. Let's see here then. So, quick intro, would you say you write high fantasy? Yes, actually.
1: I might say the West novels I would consider high fantasy. The Cigar novels I consider secondary world fantasy. A slightly tonal difference.
0: Yeah, would you be willing to actually explain a little bit about that difference?
1: I consider, and this is entirely... My consideration for, it. if people ask, I'll say secondary world fantasy, mm-hmm. the Michelle Sagara books, especially the cast novels, very often go on people's lists as urban fantasy. Oh, And then there are some arguments. People have arguments about them. Um, but they call them urban fantasy because tonally they would be urban fantasy in terms of the way the main character talks and the viewpoint, the the tone of the observations.
0: Oh, I could see how someone could make that argument. Say high fantasy is supposed to have like a bunch of interesting terms, like maybe, you know, the Elfstones of Shannara or something has a lot of really unique terms. High
1: fantasy, it's not so much that. Um, I would say that high fantasy tends towards elements of the mythic or mythic archetypes. It's just, it's in the tone or the voice of the book
0: so interesting i love this every time i talk to an author i learn more okay so folks let's see let me take a look here so i'm holding this beautiful book in my hands i'm so happy because it hasn't come out yet and i have a copy in my hands it releases what is it the 29th of this month correct i
1: believe it's 29th
0: yeah no i believe so too in the beginning of course it has the list so the chronicles of elantra elantra or elantra
1: the lunch is what I say, okay, but it doesn't really matter all that much.
0: When did you first publish Cast and Shadow? I'm looking for like the age or the year span of this series. I'm it's sorry, I'm putting you on the more. spot.
1: <laughs> well, no, I, I just have to go look it up. I'm just going off to the website right now. I have to admit that I tend to really focus on the book that is destroying my life now, i.e. Right? <laughs> the books, the books that the current book, the book that I'm writing, um, <gasps> because the books that I have finished – are now no longer my problem. I don't have to fix anything. I can't fix anything. I can't change anything. Therefore. It's it's the stuff that I'm revising, writing, beating my head against a wall about.
0: Yes. Oh, I totally get that. Yeah. 2005. Oh, you've been doing it closer than a year then. Back to the urban fiction piece. I could see how Kayla and Naya's adventures and all this could almost resemble, you know, a detective or something. Yes, that's what they are in some ways. Okay. And that's why urban fiction comes to mind for some people.
1: Uh, No, it's the tone. It's the way that she talks. She tends to talk in a very modern way or a very modern contemporary way. Therefore, they tend to feel a lot more modern because it's just the dialogue. It's the way she talks.
0: Right. And even when she's engaging with the Barani and the dragons and all these different people, they might have their fancy ways of doing it, but she just brings that street smart type of attitude forward.
1: Yes, in some ways, although I will tell you a funny story. So Harlequin has a house rule, house mm-hmm. rules for punctuation, house rules for spellings, house rules for other things. Right. One of their house rules is no semicolons in dialogue. And so I was told about this, although I was also told that, they, that the uh, editor in question had said, leave her semicolons alone. And I thought, well, what kind of an idiot put semicolons in dialogue? And uh, <clears throat> as I discovered, the answer is me. me. <laughs> I am that idiot. But I've been thinking about Kaylin and the break in the way she talks mm-hmm. and not about my dragons or my barani or my scholars or my other people, all of whom speak with semicolons. It was just, I don't think about the punctuation. Semicolons, I mean, I will probably remove two thirds of the natural semicolons that I tend to write into the books. Semicolons for me. Mm-hmm. are a natural part of the way I think and write. Mm-hmm. Some people find them pretentious or some people don't like them very much, but
0: oh my gosh, wow, like it would never even occur pretentious implies judgment. I couldn't even imagine going to that type of a place, but
1: mm. oh no no. <laughs> no no, I have certainly had people
0: How uh, is it a me. semicolon pretentious? It's basically a form. if you think about it, a comma really is a pause for breath. So a semicolon yes. for me, it's like as a person, just when you think like everyone out there who's listening right now, just think about how you communicate. You know, some of us paraphrase, some of us preface and then say what we mean to say. Some of us sandwich, you know, we're going to throw a compliment in and then we're going to put in something else followed by compliment. All of these are ways in which people get their the, what's going on inside their brain through this thing called a mouth into someone's ears to land in their brain to hopefully reflect to some degree what was in the original brain that it came out of. I mean, this is what language is about. So a semicolon to me would simply be like a type of a breath or a type of a of a framing of the language. So I'm surprised anyone would have an opinion one way or the other.
1: Well nobody sees semicolons or commas when you're speaking, right?
0: Right. But we start not getting rid of commas.
1: No, we are not, but commas are not considered. Um, I don't know. I have no idea why <laughs> I use them. I use them, and then, but okay. there's some. There was one person I knew in a, who said basically, like I remember, she was trying to read one of my books, and he said the semicolons were distracting. And I said, uh, "Why?" And he said, "Well, because my writer's workshop said that basically nobody uses semicolons, right. so you can't actually use semicolons, or it's it's considered unprofessional." And I said, "Okay, you're reading a
0: published book." Yeah, that's interesting. The cast series is one of your several different series. I started off with the Sun Sword series, I believe is the title. The Broken Crown is the first book, I think. Yes. Okay. And then there's the House War series.
1: Which follows on from the Sun Sword,
0: Right. Sort of. And, and okay, so I'm going to bounce a little bit here because when I went into Twitter and I mentioned uh, in the writing community, which is a really can be an incredibly warm and welcoming community. Um, And I'm actually asked, I said, hey, you know, like I'm interviewing this amazing author. And is there anyone out there who loves her like I do? And you have a question you want me to ask. I thought, oh, I'll just throw that out there. And so (laughs) this woman responded and I couldn't tell what she was talking about. So I had to ask because, and this is actually, and now I know, but it's so cool. But she said, do you ever ship or not ship the relationships in your books What was your favorite cannon ship? What was your favorite ship that didn't happen? Were there any ships you hated? And I'm like, I'm seeing sailboats, okay? I was like, and this other woman, she's like, I'm seeing packages being shipped around. Like, what is this woman talking about? And apparently that means like, it's short for relationship.
1: It sort of is, but it's a colloquialism. It sort of is. Like For instance, people will say, "Um, I'm shipping X or Y, and they'll say, okay, my ship has sailed. And it still means the same thing, that the ship sailing means that the relationship that they wanted is happening.
0: Let's just dive into that, actually, because honestly, I like bad boys sometimes. And this other woman on Twitter, she said, um, how did she put it? She wanted more Lord Nightshade. And then there's the demon in the Sun Sword series, who was like the sort of the father figure to the girl d- demon. It's and- Isladar. Oh, okay. So honestly, you have all these really amazing potential dark romance things that sometimes happen, sometimes don't happen. How does that work on your end? Big question, sorry.
1: It's not really a big question, but I will say up front that one of the things that I cannot quite figure out how to add to a book is romance my own particular worldview. Maybe, I don't know. I have read romances. I have tried to absorb what they have, but the actual structure of romance or romantic interactions, I have not absorbed it in a way that allows me to believe it enough to write it.
0: Oh, oh honey, we believe for you.
1: Yes, but what that actually means is, I generally tend to let the interactions between characters be what they are. I don't have a plan.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, you can. I, there were people who were quite upset at me um, with Hunter's death because okay. they had very strong relationship vibes from one of the, the main characters, Jewel, mm-hmm. and Devin, a But I mean, he's twice her age, so. Was he protective? Yes. In some ways, on some level, she is like a child to him. Mm -hmm. But the idea that that would somehow become a relationship did not occur to me. It did occur to many people and uh, some of them were not happy, um, but it hadn't occurred to me as a writer.
0: Right. I remember that. Uh, Yeah. Um, I've, mm -hmm. I've never been a romance reader. There was one book by a woman named, I think, Beatrice Small, if I'm getting the, the author's name right, called The Kadeen, K-A-D-I-N. And it is about as non-romancy as a romancy book can sort of get. And I read that when I was in high school. And I like literally carried that book with me. Like I moved a lot. And it was this one of like, f- you know, 19 books that always was in a box moving with me. And that was the only technically romance book that i had ever read for like almost forever until recently um jennifer armantrout who i believe technically is writing romance she came out with some ya also fantasy novels that have a romance edge to them but i'm just really big into the worlds so i don't have any expertise in this area but it's the potentiality that is super exciting and the possibility that maybe something's going to come of it. So when you think of Lord Nightshade, you know, you you do a great job, whether it's intentional or it's just natural for the characters, of there, there being this, this edginess of this potentiality that obviously other readers are picking up on too. And then at the same time, you're thinking that would actually be really inappropriate potentially or not healthy for Kaylin. And yet just the fact that it's a possibility there's something about it that's very intriguing so i i don't know
1: but see now at the heart of what you were what you're talking about here that's where the shippers are
0: mm-hmm.
1: right they're looking at it and they're thinking okay i want more of this i want more of this it is not deliberate on my part
0: are you one of the writers who feels like they create their own life and that you're co-creating with them
1: i will say oh this one of those things that's always very difficult, let me go back to the question of process, because everybody's process is somewhat individual. Yes. I think you have to sit down, and I think you have to write your books, and I think you write the books that are yours to write, and how you get to those books is entirely individual. However, for me, I have never understood the question, what's more important, character or plot, because I, you cannot have plot without character. Mm -hmm. You just cannot do it. So, The characters are very defining. I have a rough idea of who they are. I have a rough idea of what they're going to do. Do you know those situations in which you have two best friends, right? They're people that you adore. You trust them. They know your history. You have history with them. And you're really, really looking forward to introducing them to each other because you're certain they will love each other. (laughs) And it's not that you don't know who they are you've known them forever so you do know them and then you put them in a room together and they hate each other's guts they just instant antagonism oh, and no. you're left kind of thinking what well, what happened what did I? but you know because you you do know them it's just that you don't know how their interaction will go until they're put in a room together right and that's michelle and writing <laughs> Um, There are people who have, they have scenes with intent. This is what this scene has to accomplish. This is what the scene has to invoke or evoke. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: I have hope. I approach them hopefully. I think, okay, this is what's going to happen. Then I had to tell you, 50% of the time or more, it really isn't what happens. Mm -hmm. Somebody starts talking and everything goes left. Mm -hmm. And right. then you can either try to pull it back and force it to conform to what you thought it was going to be, or you can just go left exactly. it's the second part of Michelle's writing. End of every book. I knew what it was going to be when I started it. Mm-hmm. I didn't know how it was going to happen, but I understood the structure of the society, and I had the characters. I, I knew where it had to go. It makes a difference to what you write, because knowing what the end is you understand the emotional structure that supports the end. Yes. But it still didn't mean I knew how it was going to get there. Right. It it didn't mean that I wasn't screaming at my computer screen in outrage and <gasps> terror when somebody did something that was so totally unpredictable to me. But oddly enough, this one particular thing that was really stressing me out, even after the book was finished, my editor said, Michelle, that is kind of character definitional and I said but he's been so smart till now and she said okay you know in that writers are writers (laughs) she had no problems with it it didn't seem out of character at all but it had seemed out of character to me writing it Mm -hmm. it's just it was what that character was going to do there was nothing that I could do sort of chopping the entire scene off and and again forcing it that was going to change that and I generally tend if I have a choice I'll go with the character.
0: So so let, let me ask that a little bit because um you speak often in your books and I don't even know the term for out of the acknowledgments, you know, in the beginning where you're like thanking people who support you uh-huh. and all this. You know, you acknowledge with um with the same humor that you just showed in the last minute, you know, that there there's this agonizing, you know, despairing side to this work that you do. What is it that you love about what you do that makes it possible to uh, keep going in spite of the the massive, just, dis- you know, all the agonies? To be that honest, keyboard.
1: that me screaming at the computer screen is happening after. There is a place in which it's almost like you have to rush to keep up with the story flow. Uh-huh. Something has broken through and all of a sudden, you are right in the book. You don't have to struggle. You're not struggling with the words. The words are the words that embrace that tone or that place. It is, I love that. I love it when I hit my stride or I mm-hmm. hit that flow. Writers describe it in different ways. Mm-hmm. There is a joy and an intensity in it that I have an almost nothing else so I love writing when it is going well. <laughs> however, <laughs> however, to finish a book, you are going to get a whole load of times when the book is not going well. If you're not willing to wade through the wrong turns and the thing's not going well, then the things going well don't matter. Right. Because they're incomplete.
0: Right, like someone who is, you know, plays professional football. There's all the stuff that they love about it, but they also have to accept they're going to get, you know, thrown on their butt and they might break a few bones along the way, be sore. They're going to lose games. Yep, yep, yep. Maybe get concussions. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: I love it enough that I'm willing to soldier through all the times when it is not going well. I actually love parts of writing an enormous amount. And when it goes well, I'll say something funny. If when I'm writing, I am weeping, it's something that always, always works on the page. Yeah. I have never, ever had to change anything. It is embarrassing, on the other hand. Like when I, was write- when I was writing Grave, where I'm sitting in the coffee shop, because at the coffee shop, if the phone rings, it's not my problem. If a child is crying, it's not my problem. If a child throws up on the ground, I don't have to clean it up. It is None of it is my problem. And there was one session of two hours, I swear to God, that I was weeping. I'm sure that people thought, looking at me, that I was, you know, answering divorce emails or something, <laughs> because I really had to actually, a number of times, just wipe the tears away so I could read the screen. <laughs>
0: And everyone's was, tiptoeing around. They're like, "Oh God, what? You know, me? who died? <laughs> this poor woman." Yes,
1: exactly, exactly that. But I also knew that those words would not have to change.
0: Mm-hmm. So and you were that, not getting up from that chair.
1: No, no, because I was in the middle. I was like, I was right in the flow of it. But enough, the character viewpoint, and I tend to write in character viewpoint, is strong enough. Mm-hmm. That you are exactly where you need to be to write this section, but it's not even that intellectual. You just start. Usually, it's a phrase. Mm-hmm. In this particular case, the character is trying to convince somebody that his guilt is pointless, because if he could somehow go back in time mm-hmm. to change everything, if you know, to even face off to fight, he'd be dead, which is true. Mm-hmm. And then she says, which I hadn't expected, all I would have had to do is make one phone call, and then it just goes on from there. With death, there's grief, and then sometimes in certain things, there's guilt. And for her, the boyfriend died in a car accident when he was driving to her house.
0: This is um oh Grace is no, it's, it's the, a, Queen the Queen of, of the, the Dead, dead trilogy, trilogy yeah. right? It's yep. it,
1: and this is something that she says in the third book. Was I planning to have her say that? No, it's just that she did. When she was talking to somebody else about their guilt, she then then closes it with all I had to do was make one phone call. Mm -hmm. And then we just go on from there. But you're right. It's the unexpected, unplanned, perfect cry from the interior of where your character is. That's where you are. And so those words, I don't know but I can doubt every other word. And when I'm, after I've done my first draft, it's me going back to look at the sentences and thinking, oh my God, who let the drunk monkeys loose?
0: (laughs) like the drunk monkeys. There's the creative artistic side of writing. And then there Mm -hmm. is the editing side. And then there's the platform business side. And then there's the survive and don't give up side. And the sides just sort of go on. One thing I want to ask about and McCaffrey wrote a similar number of books. And even if they were in the same world, because they were their own trilogy, it was perhaps a little bit easier to really make sure that everything stayed tight within the story. And, and from book one to two to three, you didn't lose things. You, like, for example, with the cast series... That's a lot of books in that series. You're having to hold together. I mean, you need book number 16 to not make something in book number three suddenly sound illogical or something just for the sake of sharing your own way of doing it because it might work for someone else. Not, I know, because you're telling people how to do it because everyone's process is different. But what works for you when it comes to organizing all these details so that you can both access them and also when something comes up in your mind, you go, oh yes, you even know where to like put that. Like how, how, what do you use for organizing all that information?
1: I have a wiki. A wiki. Like it's just, it's not a online wiki, but it's a personal wiki. And I tend to add information that I'm probably sure I'm going to forget, like eye colors. Right. Onto the wiki. I'm terrible with people's eye colors unless the okay. eye colors are significant. So it's right. easier in the cast novels because most races Right. have eye colors that respond to emotional state. But even then, the colors are different depending on the race, and mm-hmm. humans don't. And then sometimes has beard mm-hmm. or not. And I had a timeline, which I don't have in the Cayman books. There's a very different organizational structure for the West books than there is for the cast books. Mm-hmm. Uh, the cast books, in theory, were supposed to be able to sort of stand alone They're sort of more episodic.
0: Yeah, like like a police um, officer. Yeah, exactly. Like a detective series where maybe you could do the whole thing from beginning to end. But if you just pop in and grab one, you it's going to work.
1: Yes. Yeah. But in fact, that's not apparently entirely true. That was my intent. But it is very hard for any writer to see whether or not it works because, you know, you know, all the information. Yeah, Yeah. Reading it. Some of the things that you just take totally for granted uh, might be information that new readers don't have. If people get lost in something, um, they probably aren't going to continue. So it's, it is a tricky balance. And it, so Cast and Sorrow is the only book where somebody actually, one of the reader comments was, you know, best exposition ever. And it is basically an internal monologue yeah. of a rant. <laughs> Kaylin's rant to her past self: Do not do this. Oh, and if you see this, don't do this.
0: Oh, that's a really cute little way of doing it.
1: Yeah, it was perfect actually for the person that Kaylin was. It was just I, as I said, I woke up and thought, "Oh my god, why are you struggling with this?" You know exactly what to do because Kaylin is pretty chatty on the inside of her head. On the other hand, I wrote uh, a novel about Severn.
0: Um, yes. The first is The Emperor's Wolves. Well, there's another one still th- coming out, right? You haven't
1: finished there it? There is a second one. That's the one I'm working on now. Okay. But I got to tell you, everybody around me got to hear me bitterly complain about the fact that Severn does not talk. Oh, yeah. A totally different character type, and he is not talking. So And
0: now one. he's your main character?
1: <laughs> well, he <laughs> is. It is his story. But in fact, it is multiple point of view because Severn doesn't talk. Right.
0: He was very, so, very communicative as a foil to, yes, he spoke in volumes by what he didn't say or what he didn't respond to or whatever. And yeah, if you take away his his person to be quietly responding to, then what do you do?
1: Yeah, it was great. <laughs> it was a lot of hair-pulling moments. Why? Why? Are you happy so in the end? Oh, well, was I fine with it in the end? Yes. I was absolutely fine with it in the end. But okay. it's the first one of the cast novels. That has been multi viewpoint because it is yeah. some of it is Severn. Some of it is Ibeline. Some of it is the Wolf Lord. Some of it is Alluvian. Mm-hmm. So the viewpoint does shift.
0: And how was that, that for you? Because I don't. That was fun. It's you... fine.
1: I actually like multiple viewpoints better. Okay.
0: Well, I, I find mean, them... House War. Isn't that multiple viewpoints? All of the West novels were. Okay. Okay. All I of was the like, West yeah, had
1: okay. always had multiple viewpoints. I prefer it in a lot of ways because a multiple viewpoint book allows you to get the story across w- without feeling the necessity to warp the plot so that the main character is always in the place where you need to have information come from.
0: Or everything is so I mean, of, through their viewpoint as well. I mean, right? You know, it's like if everything is through their view, then it's their view is always coloring absolutely everything. You never actually get a 100% access to the other character because it's always the POVs. Well, point yeah, of but
1: view. that's always going to be true. It's just that I didn't have to have a 16-year-old street urchin with no political connections being the only funnel for action Mm -hmm. because there's no way she can be everywhere there's no way she'd be allowed to be everywhere so the book can naturally evolve and the story can evolve so the readers know more than the individual characters but they get the whole picture from the differing viewpoints right and if you only have one viewpoint you either just drop things well things were happening in the background but you're never seeing it Mhm. Or you somehow have to try to warp plot so that that person is in a location they couldn't naturally be.
0: Or they're which... hearing about it after the fact or whatever. Yeah, and and it can work beautifully and wonderfully, clearly it can, but you're right, it's an in a way it's a limiting factor.
1: Yes, it's a limiting factor that multiple viewpoints can get rid of. Yeah. I, you have to actually believe what you're writing. Okay, no. I have to actually believe what I'm writing. Let me not try to generalize for everybody. Yeah, I hear you. I assume that it is true for everybody, but I have to believe it. And if mm-hmm. I have to put a character in a place that strains my ability to believe that this could happen, mm-hmm. it's just not going to work. Yeah. I, I Even if other people can make it work quite well, I can't.
0: Yeah, the alligator so... in Alaska is just really hard to pull off.
1: So, yes, exactly. Exactly that. So I tend to prefer multiple viewpoints. You know, it's interesting
0: in in my novel, um, The Ghost Lords, which is not yet published. One thing I got from it was the idea of multiple point of view through flash fiction. So it's first person, but scattered throughout are these little tiny flash fiction vignettes that are written in third person from a different point of view. Each character that's important in book one gets their own little flash fiction vignette. And I don't know. I hope it works. But I really felt like it allowed me to expand into things that could not be seen through the point of view of the primary character.
1: Uh, it's one of the reasons I don't love first person as a narrative. It's because it is it is difficult um, for the reasons that you've stated, right? Yeah. These are important characters and first person. But first person allows you to do other things mm-hmm. that are interesting. Mm-hmm. Like first person is almost by definition an unreliable narrator. People don't generally consider it that way, but it is. So you can do interesting things or different things because because of that.
0: I think you're right. People don't typically um, align those two. Do you want to go a little bit more into depth about what for people who are maybe Readers out there and haven't heard the term unreliable narrator before do you want to detail that a bit
1: sure an unreliable narrator? Usually when you're reading uh, narrative fiction What you're reading you accept as truth for that book a first-person viewpoint is a little bit more intimate But it's also tied up in all of the assumptions that the narrator makes so there are misunderstandings. The narrator can feel something very strongly mm-hmm. and it will be colored with, say, their pain or their anger or their or their certainty that they're being somehow attacked or or whatever. The reader accepts that up front. However, that is not always the case. All of us have misinterpreted things that have happened. It's like any argument you have with friends where you eventually settle things out and people think, wait, that's what you meant? Right, but right. Until that point... The internal narrative absolutely viscerally believes in what they feel and how they personally have interpreted things. So a first person narrative can be interesting because the type of surprise changes not what actually happens, but can change how readers view it. Perspective. Yeah, it's perspective of it.
0: Mm-hmm. And what would be a relia- an example of a reliable narrator?
1: They're just, you You can trust that their observations are true.
0: Would that typically be third person more often than first person?
1: No, actually, you can, there are a lot of first person books where the first person is a reliable narrator, right? It's just that hmm. <laughs> the boundaries of the story can be expanded even with first person narratives when you realize the moment that you realize that this person who is telling you this is totally misinterpreting <laughs> or but you'd look at the events that they're, that the first person narrator is talking about and think, uh, if you were talking to a friend, you'd say, um, I don't, don't think they meant what you think they meant with those words.
0: What type of right? power and value do you think you can pull out of that? Like, how would you intentionally have Kaylin misunderstand something? What would be your purpose? Like, I want her to misunderstand this because I want that to come out. What, what's like an example of how you would intentionally use that?
1: No, no, no. I, I, Having said all of that, it's not something that I'm personally, with these books, interested in doing.
0: Well, okay, I was going to say, I haven't noticed that happening with Caitlin very much. <laughs> no, I like it as okay. a reader uh, because it
1: adds a layer. Mm-hmm. But it it adds a layer in certain types of stories or it changes. Like, the minute you have an unreliable narrator, you're changing tone. Mm-hmm. The tone becomes the thing that shifts, right? So the voice of the book... Um, is not heavily rooted and the minute that you begin to detect little cracks it changes the way that you interact with text so instead of believing everything that this person is telling you you are now assessing Mm -hmm. you are now thinking okay now wait wait and you still don't know but part of um, the reward of a book like that is in fact you building alternate pictures from book that right. in theory won't offer it.
0: Right, right, right. gives you creative um, agency as the reader in a way. Yes, yes. It's not a concrete well, sort creative. Of, it's not like you're no, creating I, reality. I wouldn't say that
1: because I, yeah, but I would say that the author intends that. So it's not yes. really, it isn't a creative um, agency per se. It's, it, it's more like reading a mystery novel. yeah. Um, where who done it? Where you're now trying to hold all the things in your head so that you can figure out the mystery before the book goes there?
0: oh my gosh, okay, like I've never been part of a uh, a book club, you know, where readers get together and talk once a month about the book they all read or something i've I've always thought that would be super fun. And I've literally never done it, but it just occurred to me, imagine if you were like part of a group of like you know ten people who you all read the same book and get together and chat. if you were reading a mystery. I'll bet when you got together and you were like, well, midway through, who did you think had done it? Like, I'll bet every person's going to have a different idea. Just think about that Mm -hmm. capacity within the world of a mystery for readers to, to form their own ideas of who done it that are not completely controlled and presented to them by the writer. And then at the end, they all come together and they get the answer from the writer. But before that, I bet their imagination was all over the place
1: yes um imagination is obviously required for fiction right yeah but fiction can point at things that are I don't know different than life or larger than life people can approach things um from an entirely different angle so
0: Mm
1: -hmm. mm, how do I say this I don't deliberately write message fiction
0: I I I don't think I would be good at it yeah but do you feel like messages come through anyway
1: I think sometimes they do, but they do because Kaylin herself, the character herself is learning things, the things that she believed. I, the third book is possibly the biggest one where she spent her entire yeah life in the series up till that point, absolutely hating and loathing the mind readers, the, the right. Alani mind readers, right? people who are basically capable of learning things about you that you don't want as if those people are going to be, Attempting to do exactly that, there is a strong fear component to the deep personal loathing. And what she has to do, or what she does, is to uh, reevaluate when she actually meets somebody
0: That's finds true. Out what There's, their lives are like. Yeah, there was a lot of internal growth for her in that one, for sure. Also, one thing I've noticed is, you know, I'm trying, I guess... what's the the duology? What's the name of the duology? Hunter's Oath is like one of the titles, I think. Sacred Hunt. Sacred Hunt, there you go. Yeah, so um, that one focuses largely on male characters. But similar to some of the other um, writers who I've been drawn to in my life, I think there's an innate empowerment of, um, wrong word, women, you have a lot of really strong female characters. And I could imagine a person who says, I want to prove to the world that, you know, women can be strong. So therefore I'll set out to do this. That's like one way to go about it. But it could just, I mean, I don't know if it's, there's a level of intentionality or just instinct or desire or whatever, but you definitely present brilliant, empowered female characters as well as males but for women growing up in a patriarchy, reading about women who are capable and and succeed, that's important. I
1: would oh, – how do I put this? I actually had another author friend whose name I will not mention. And she'd read Hunter's Oath and Hunter's Death. Mm-hmm. And she loved the books. But she actually asked me on the phone, but why are all of your women so bitchy? Oh. And I thought, huh? So then I phoned another author, a mutual author friend, and I said, um, Alice, are my women bitch. Right? Like, why, why, why are they asking this question? Right. This writer said, after a pause, the thing that I have always liked about your female characters is how remarkably free from sentiment they are.
0: Oh, yeah. And I yes.
1: said, wait, so that's kind of a yes? She said, I think that they're exactly what they would be given the power that they have and the responsibility that they have. Possibly that would not be what was expected. But I honestly did not write them uh, in any other way except these are the women who are in charge of everything, judgment, the running of the duchy, the government, because the men don't. Mm -hmm. But the land is based." on the hunter lords, because those are the people who might have to die. So the women rule
0: mm-hmm.
1: everything except the hunt and the sacred hunts. And so for me, the responsibilities of rulership and the power are going to create a certain type of character interaction. Yeah, I, I never yeah. ever considered it bitchy. No, <laughs> no. Once. And
0: I wouldn't either. No, I agree completely. It's a, there's a level of, um, There's a level of pragmatism when you have responsibility for um, large communal uh, uh, events. I don't know what, you know, if you're responsible for the kingdom, if you're responsible for the castle, whatever, you know, um, you, you actually, you have a lot of people underneath you who are looking to you Mm -hmm. for leadership, direction, security, confidence, they need to know that they, what they're doing is okay and going to work because you believe in it so strongly. And so that you you can't just sit around and, you know, be like um, super soft and weepy and insecure and, and not sure of yourself and expect people to follow you.
1: Nope. So to me, they were rulers and they did not speak any differently than a ruler would. Mm-hmm. But this was when I discovered that the it's there's a strong embedded idea a woman, what woman should be, or what feminine woman should right. be, or something that I had not considered when I was creating that particular universe.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, so I've I've interviewed some people who have definitely set out to tackle yes. important issues in the world through their fiction, and I mean, dystopia does that in particular. Um, and um, but I. Yeah, I wouldn't say that I get that sense from your books that you're out to like, you know, make a super big point. It feels to me like you are out to flesh out this world and create this incredible ride for your readers that is is worth their time.
1: I would say the people who are who are trying to more deliberately make points are also doing the same thing. Because um, You're not going to get people reading something if they do not find it compelling. Yeah. It's just a more, it's a more deliberate choice. I mean. Sure. Oh, I wasn't criticizing
0: it. Yeah. No, not at all. No, no.
1: But but the things that moved me to write these particular books were not that.
0: Do you know what it is that moved you to write these stories?
1: Well, I haven't finished the West books yet. Uh, And yes, it's the ending. Mm-hmm. So with the sacred hunt um it was the well it wasn't it wasn't the ending as i discovered to my great sorrow oh. when i had to go past the point for which these books had been created and still had to finish the book <sighs> but the ending is very often it's a strong emotional response from me so i have an end in mind and i know exactly what it feels like
0: the sun, was that true for the sunsword series yes so 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 the, that's i guess where does that ending come from like like you know you're you're walking along you're sleeping in bed you're you're gardening i don't know what you're doing you're pregnant whatever and and you have this this ending that comes I'll you have a sense of
1: writing oh <laughs> my god <laughs>
0: <laughs> well you know sorry <laughs> oh. What is it that brings endings to mind? Maybe would be the question. Like, like where? Because I know, I don't know. Maybe it's really hard to answer. In which case, we can blow off the question. But it is a question that people oftentimes are curious about that generative aspect.
1: Um, for me, uh, the world starts with the Hunter books and the end of Stephen's work. Um, I don't know if. That was like I wasn't deliberately thinking. Oh, what should I write about? Because that's not the way I work. Mm-hmm. But the end of Stephen's arc I could absolutely see, and so I don't make a notes. I don't think. Well, maybe I could write a story about this later. I just have that, and then if it persists, it is strong enough for me to carry a book. Mm-hmm. People sometimes say, "Well, well, you know, don't you?" Um, write down your ideas. What if you forget about it? And my response is often, if I forget about it, it probably would not carry me through a book.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. No, very fair, very fair point. Yes. But Mm -hmm. I
1: had something in mind, and I don't know how much of that is um, coming out of current events or the emotional reaction I've had to reading about some current events or Mm -hmm. thinking about how People in actual reality would feel or respond to certain things, but mm-hmm. it, it's just you have. I had this clarity of emotion and the layers of emotion, and that was the end of Stephen's arc. And then the question was, how do I create an emotional path from the beginning of the book to that point, so that other people? Can maybe, if I do it properly, feel the same thing. Right. Poetry right. to me is an act of speaking in symbols that are recognized to people who read poetry. That the metaphors, if the most striking poetic metaphors for me are the ones that I haven't thought of, but that immediately describe an emotion or an emotional place. Right. Fiction for me is forging the path. How do I deliver this sense of emotion and response? Mm -hmm. What do I do to build the structural attachments so that when I reach that point, people will experience that emotion?
0: Mm -hmm. Right. Absolutely. I, um, what, when I started my radio show, Prose, Poetry, and Purpose, about seven and a half, almost eight years ago. The the reason I started it was because I feel like if we can combine the mind and the heart, it's when you have both that you can get like a real change in a human being. I think the change has to happen emotionally and not just in your mindset. Um, And that was sort of what I wanted to do with the radio show was bring forward writers of fiction, and give them a chance to, you know, speak to that power of emotion to create lasting change and inspire positive social change in the world through stories.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure that I think about it as social change when I'm working on it. I feel sometimes that it is... um, I understand exactly what you're saying, and I agree, but... In terms of actual intent for me while I'm writing,
0: mm-hmm.
1: that's not it. Because I I sort of reached a point where I I can do my best to attempt to describe or create mm-hmm. an emotional place, but I'm well aware that people will read into things that I in their own way. We right. reading is personal. Our emotional responses are personal. I used to believe if I if I when I was much younger, and if that Broken Crown was the book that broke that, that uh-huh. if I was actually clear enough, then um, people would love these books, right? No, that's not the way it works. So what I what I came to understand is that people bring a lot of themselves into fiction. It's why the reactions are often so personal. Oh, and yes. I accept that. I can do my best to make clear what I intended in the book, but people are going to pick up things that I didn't intend for them to pick up. That is the way it works. Even if it moves them immensely, not always pick up what I thought.
0: Yeah, it's a partnership between the writer and the reader. Not so much a can, you know, yes. I feel like it's definitely a partnership. Especially books. So yeah, movies are less of a partnership because you're providing so much. There's the visuals that, you know, it's so much is put on the screen. I feel like movies um, are much more controlling of what the viewer is going to get out of them. But books, I don't know. Yeah. Even in
1: movies, my, my example is Sense and Sensibility, because it's probably more widely viewed than Freak the Mighty. Mm-hmm. Um I am watching Sense and Sensibility with my sister for the first time. Uh, and, and I really quite liked it. Mm-hmm. But Which one? Very- it was
0: made at least twice. Which one?
1: Oh, no, the Hugh Grant one. Yes. Okay. Emma, okay. Thompson Hugh Grant. Yeah. Um, the one that was directed by, I think it was Ang Lee. So I'm watching it with my sister. And at the end, you know, when... The youngest sister gets, you know. Oh, it's it's the
0: the older guy who mm-hmm. was super cool. And I
1: said, "Yeah, that's not the colonel. No, no, it's a Hugh Grant guy." And she said, "Michelle," and I said, "Cause he's on a brown horse." <laughs> and she said, "Pardon?" <laughs> and I said, "Well, did you notice? And this is me because I've only seen it once. All of these horses is white except for the tail. And Alan Rickman's horse is black. It's all black. And Hugh Grant's horse is all brown except for the tail." They, they used solid color horses. So I assume they did it for a reason. And she was just appalled <laughs> because, because I actually, it took me an age to ask her, that Lucy Person is doing all this on purpose. And she's like, oh my God, are we even <laughs> watching the same movie? Of course she's doing it on purpose.
0: But it just,
1: you know, it was not as obvious to me.
0: The two of you so were, were taking all- away oh. totally different stuff.
1: Yes. <laughs> totally different things. Watching uh, exactly the same movie for the first time. Period.
0: Um, and, and I love me. Ellen Rickman's character. Oh, my God. Yes,
1: I did. But <sighs> what I mean is the things yeah. that she had expected to surprise me, I'd spoiled because it was I said, wait, no, but that's a brown horse. Right. Or how can you miss that she is deliberately doing this? Didn't you see the way that she looked at this? It's like, well, clearly, no. mean, <laughs> I just... It hadn't occurred to me. So,
0: so in a I way, probably, when you're writing your book, you have to remember to let go of expectations or a desire to have control over what the readership is going to think of it to a degree. Yes. And
1: then, you know, if the readers hate it, boy, they're really going to hate it. No. And part of the problem is fiction engenders emotional response. Mm. So if they're going to hate it, man, have you ever thrown a book that you absolutely hated the end of across the room?
0: You know, I, I think I've, well, I, I, about twice in my life, I've actually been that upset. I'm not much of a thrower, <laughs> but twice, yes. And then there's the book that I couldn't finish, It by Stephen King. I'll never forget the my very conscious decision to, I know, cannot read another page. No, no. I mean, I'm scarred and I only got through like the first quarter of that book.
1: So. Uh, some people are not for her
0: no no not that one uh, I've read they're... other Stephen King I love the stand for example so why don't we go ahead and pull back around for a second unfortunately since we're running out of time and talk a little bit more about um casting conflict just to make sure people know where th- I mean I want everyone who's listening to this interview to know exactly where they can find you and um I want them to have memorized your name okay so <laughs> so everyone every everyone. Just take the time in your life to check out Michelle's work. And if it is your thing, then you're in for a huge, many, many, many book treat. And if it's not your thing, well, then that's fine too. I'm sorry you're missing out. Um, So Michelle with two L's. That's always important to know. And um, Sagara is, um, it's all A's. S-A-G-A-R-A. So cast Casting Conflict is, just tell me, is this the end? I have no idea. I haven't finished it. Is this the end it is is this not the end.
1: No, it is not the end. Good. Okay. Uh, with these books, what I actually said when I started them was, I'm just going to write stories until I run out of story ideas that I want to tell, and then I'm going to end it. Okay. I, yeah. So I need a few books ahead. But the problem is, uh, and this is consequence, right? You yeah. You start and think, I'm going to write a book about the Money. That's book two. Then I'm going to write a book about... The Aryans. Oh, actually, no. Wait, I can't write a book about the Aryans yet, because I have to do this one thing. Mm-hmm. I wanted to write a Dragon Court book. I wanted. There's a whole bunch of things that I wanted to do, mm-hmm. but the consequences of some of the decisions that had occurred in previous books changed the shape yeah. of the narrative choices, and also some of them I wanted to actually investigate. Right. So cast in conflict comes out of cast in wisdom in a way. And it's because in order to even, to, in order to get to the end, there are a couple of things I want from the very underexplored fiefs. Part of that will be addressed mm-hmm. in cast in conflict. And part of that will be addressed in the book that follows it.
0: Well, okay. So wait, it says here um, on the inside cover, uh, you have it goes you know through all them cast in wisdom and then this is cast in conflict and then it says and cast in moonlight found in harvest moon, uh, just I'm confused.
1: Cast in heart, um, cast in moonlight was a novella.
0: Okay, I remember. Okay, it sounded familiar.
1: Okay, so if you are a print reader, then you can only find it in the collection the anthology or not really anthology but a collection of three novellas
0: which is harvest moon one of
1: them yes, yes one of them is harvest moon
0: publishers have supported different works so like house war is not mentioned on the inside of here so yes so that's why you end up having they don't they don't cross reference each other um
1: they don't partly because it's a different name i think but they're different <sighs> publishers okay um, and it is a different series Got it. And to be honest, when I first read the, wrote the cast series, I felt somewhat certain that West readers would not appreciate it.
0: Because really? it's very,
1: very different. Well, yeah, oh. and I didn't want people to pick up a Segarra novel and expect it to be a West novel because they probably weren't going to be very happy. Well, I I, that want- makes
0: sense. I could understand if someone – expectations are a great way to be unhappy in life. Um, but for me, there's – there's a a level of wit and there's a way in which you as a writer describe things that's definitely similar across all of the books.
1: Some um, of the readers said exactly that. Mm-hmm. Some of the readers said, well, you're two of my favorite authors, but I would never have guessed to were the same <laughs> because the books are so different. <laughs> and so it, it's what you get out of it as a reader yeah, probably changes or, or what you're attuned to as a reader will change depending on it. Yeah. Um, I had one reader, I had one customer at the store because I worked at a bookstore, Bath yes. Phoenix Bookstore in Toronto. And she came in and she picked up Broken Crown and came to the counter and I said, "Marsha, what are you doing? And she said, well, I really love your other books, so I'm going to read this one. And I said, no, no, you are not going to read that one. <laughs> and she looked at me and I said, you don't like multiple viewpoints, you don't like politics or court politics, you don't like armies and battles. And I said, everything about The Broken Crown,
0: Oh, but you denied for you. her the broken crown?
1: <laughs> well, so she put it back, but then apparently she snuck into the store when I wasn't there and bought it, uh-huh. but she didn't finish
0: it, oh. right? She didn't finish it because so you, you nailed be- it. You were right.
1: Well, because i have been recommending books and because I'd right. been dealing with her for years, I knew what she liked and what she didn't, and this oh. was really what she didn't, so but it wasn't my fault cuz i was trying to get her not to buy it.
0: I know you're you're uh, being honest. I am so grateful that i happen to like every single thing that you've written. So, um i'm just thrilled that the entire that my my interest spectrum is broad enough to encompass all the books.
1: I don't mind. Well, okay, what how do i put this? I don't generally expect that people will love both of them.
0: Mm-hmm. So,
1: it's always nice when people do. Mhm. It, it it tends to be a little bit broader than kind of. like you're, you 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 mm-hmm. you'll read a whole bunch of different things
0: well if you came um, out with a western I don't think I'd like it
1: i I, I have never i admit um been drawn to writing a western yeah um although when I remember that one of the big famous westerns that I cannot remember my dad really liked it was based on the seventh Samurai, right? then I think well okay maybe <laughs> Never say never.
0: No, never say never. I know you might be the writer of a Western that I would love. So there we go. Oh my goodness. All right. So, real quick, how do people find you on the internet?
1: I am M Sagara, M S -S A G A R A, on Twitter. I am at Michelle Sagara, one word, dot com. Um, that's my website and it has preview chapters and it'll cover things. Mm-hmm. And I am on Facebook as Michelle Seguera as well.
0: Excellent. Michelle Segura. And so everyone, if you go to my website, marchtwisdale.com, And you take a look at Michelle's interview, which will be under the podcast page. You'll also see that she has a bio there. And we always make sure that the bio includes links to where you can find people online. So if you've just tuned in at the end of this interview and you missed the beginning, you want to go catch it all, that's where you go, marchtwisdell.com. And if you want to see all these beautiful books by Michelle, it's Michelle Sagara Is that .com? Yes, it's a .com. Good. Excellent. And then Twitter would be M. Sagara. Yes. Got it. Okay. Thank you so much for calling in and um, Zooming in, I should say, and joining me on Prose, Poetry, and Purpose.
1: Thank you for inviting me.